Welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. My name is Mackenzie Britton. I am the producer for the podcast and your temporary host while Pastor Joe is on vacation. This past week at Bothell, we were hosted by an old friend, Reverend Dave Wright. The former Bothell UMC associate pastor joined us after many years away while serving as the university chaplain at the University of Puget Sound since 2006. Reverend Dave preaches to us from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 13. Check it out now on Bothell Amplified. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Holy words for God's people. Good morning. This is weird, (laughs) but it's a good weird. It is so good to be here today. Um, I don't know what stars aligned that uh, Sylvia and Nola were, were helping lead us in worship. I'm grateful to Brian for his assistance in bringing this together and grateful to Pastor Joe for the invitation not only to come back and visit, but particularly in my capacity as our Peace with Justice Coordinator. A primary part of that role is to help allocate funds given by our congregations across this conference in support of regional projects that seek to pursue justice and equity for all people. I was thinking of that watching the opening video, seeing uh, the progress flags and the windows, seeing the increasing diversity of this community like so many of ours that are thriving. With that hat on, I want to say thank you, as I do to any congregation I visit in this capacity, for the work that your generosity and commitment have allowed the conference to do with our neighbors beyond all the things that you do here and the things that happen globally through our denomination, you have literally helped turn firearms into gardening tools. You've supported a church that provides meals for migrant workers in the central valleys of the state on days that they cannot work. You've supported training for sexual assault nurse examiners in northern Idaho, responding to violence and harm in an area where there are no resources before that. The Peace with Justice offerings from our churches support that and so much more. So again, for the lives that you have changed, for the lives that you have literally saved, thank you. About the time that I was settling on the scripture for today's sermon, and there was some confusion as I read the wrong week in the lectionary, um, thankfully I caught that soon enough. I preach once a month at best. (laughs) 
as I was settling on it, probably the day after I chose what I was going to at least have us read from and, and deal with this morning, I attended a strange and beautiful and perfect memorial service, celebrating the life of my former boss, Ron Thomas. Ron was the president of Puget Sound that selected me to leave this congregation and come to be their second university chaplain. Ron was instrumental in shaping my first years in that role. He retired several years ago, and that was early in a long and ultimately lethal struggle with kidney cancer. But in his last months, Ron curated, designed to his exacting specifications, the service that would celebrate his life. And it was carried out very much as Ron would have had it. Ron and I weren't particularly close, but we both found the sacred in literature, music, the arts, the outdoors. He was an English lit professor, a scholar of Victorian novels, Sherlock Holmes being his specialty, held a deep and private faith, so much so that the fact that his memorial service was so richly full of faith was a shock to most who were there. And of course, he celebrated the words and music of the rock stars of his youth. We weren't close, but we had a lot in common and appreciated each other. I know at least I appreciated him. His service caught all of this well. The poetry of 1 Corinthians 13, T.S. Eliot and references to Greek mythology, music of the two great saints, St. Dylan and St. Springsteen. <laughs> it was very wrong. Throughout the memorial, the images of this morning's scripture that I had just settled into were, were ricocheting through my head whispering in my heart, mountains and hills bursting into song, fields full of trees clapping their hands with joy. These are the sorts of images that, that a scholar and artist like Ron would weave into his messages, his speeches, his letters. I don't recall him ever using this scripture, but I recall many other instances where he would draw from the poetry of the Bible, trying to, to weave its beauty in a way that was accessible to people of any, all, or no faiths. I wish that he and I could have discussed this particular verse. I think he would have loved it. Images like these are important for those who love language. They're even more important than the words alone because they bring us into something bigger than ourselves, bigger than a syntax, bigger than a short, pithy phrase. These images are at the heart of the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Bible. I always want to be particular here. The prophetic tradition is not what we usually think it is. Early Christians seeking to claim some kind of authenticity and roots in Judaism. Repurposed, appropriated the prophetic tradition to be all about Jesus, all about predicting his birth and life. This not only distorted the original texts, but it created the foundations for modern and historic anti-Semitism. This history has become a critical part of my interfaith work and is a whole different sermon but part of why I want to engage Isaiah this morning on the terms of what prophecy meant in his time, in the, in the context of ancient Israel and Judah, is to draw us back into that story that we emerge from, not on our terms, but on its terms, because there is great power there. Prophets in that time were crucial figures in ethical, political, personal, and social issues in their communities. At their best, they had two primary functions, neither of which was telling the future. First, prophets challenged the people of God. 
to do better, to do justice, to seek peace, to care for the poor and the outsiders. They sometimes brought a particularly sharp reminder, often full of violent and hurtful language, trying to shock the people of God back into the vision, the dreams that God has for us, reminding us that the way of God is the way of equitable justice for all peoples. Alongside the challenge, every time, there is the comfort. Comforting the people of God when they messed everything up. That never happens. And then found themselves suffering or exiled or hurting or invaded or worse. And in those moments, the sharpness of the challenge is balanced with love, care, joy, compassion, hope. The promise of God's steadfast love. In both challenge and comfort, the prophets relied heavily on metaphorical language, as in today's reading. Other examples, Jeremiah wore a yoke over his neck, going around the city like an ox, like a slave, warning people of the captivity that would come from the forthcoming Babylonian invasion. The prophet Micah used a bowl of rotting fruit, which this time of year, if you leave it out in the heat, you can kind of imagine that. But he used that fruit, that bowl, as a metaphor for a sermon in which he tried to get people to understand how simply wrong, how rotten an unjust, faithful society is, that it's no longer faithful, that it's rotting. The healing and hope and joy images were just as powerful. Fleeing Egypt, Miriam led the women dancing and in song, embodying the freedom and liberation that God's people found and escaped from slavery. Amos dreamed of a time when justice would roll down like waters, when righteousness would be like an ever-flowing stream. And alongside them we have Isaiah, the joyous song of mountains, hills, exuberant trees dancing and singing and clapping their hands in the fields. Today's text is not a vision or a promise of some somewhat psychedelic future some pie-in-the-sky reality we'll get to someday. It's not escapism, but it's a glimpse of what is always around us, but that we are often, so often, not able to see. The prophets again and again proclaim that the presence of the sacred infuses all that is, that the sacred, that God, the power that we cannot fully grasp or comprehend, is always present both in the grief and hurting and all that is wrong and broken, with joy and love, beauty as the ground of the divine being. Living in this balance, somehow striving to be aware of both the hurt and the life and hope and joy. This is the work of seeking peace with justice. Those words peace and justice aren't adequate, of course. They reduce things to simple phrases that get politicized and have limited impact and don't have the, the grand artistic vision of these prophetic passages. They do not capture the towering tyranny of bias and hate, the grinding wounds of poverty, the nibbling erasures of microaggressions, the existential threats of war or climate change. This is part of why the prophetic voice has for millennia Turn to metaphor, turn to song, turn to poetry, turn to embodied actions. Turn to music, turn to art, both for pain and joy that are too tremendous 
to reduce to simple words. Chasing after justice without that spiritual center is a recipe for burnout and despair, something that I have learned these last 17 years. And it's not enough to live in an escapist Christianism, some mystical world that is full of awe, but no action. Or to swear blind allegiances to church, or theology, or denomination, or state, or rigid beliefs. Those options are just ways to escape from the hard and exhausting needs that surround us every day. Most of us, I believe, live in the tension, in the spaces between these extremes, between what the 13th century mystic and prophet Marguerite Perret called the ravishing far nearness of God, and what 20th century mystic and prophet Dorothy Day referred to as the long loneliness of being steeped in the fight for justice without, in her early life, any sense of the sacred. For those of us who seek to follow Jesus, the great prophet of our tradition, Christianity, we have rich examples of this in his own life, raging and rioting in the temple after seeing how it had been defiled by the Roman Empire and their economics, yet retreating to the wild, to his home base, to his friends and family, being with people that he loved, not in the broad love that we think of, but the people he stayed with his chosen family. Seeking peace with justice in the way of Jesus is living in that tension, that dance between seeking to see and know and heal the overwhelming hurt, sorrow, and injustice that mark this world, while at the same time seeking to see and know and embody the wonder and awe that, that give us a sense of the beauty of the divine, that give us the hope that the suffering is never the final story. In that spirit, I close coming back to that warm afternoon at Ron's bizarre memorial service, with Isaiah's dancing trees and singing hills rattling in my brain. Over the hour and five minutes of the service, Ron had specified one hour, and people were upset that it went over by five minutes. He was particular. In that time, I found myself attending to what was on the screen in front of me. It was in two different buildings. But moving between Isaiah and a particular poem that he and I had shared, that he had introduced me to, that had become an important part of my own repertoire in public events, in preaching, in secular and sacred spaces. So I moved to closing in the spirit of the commitment to art and poetry and metaphor that is at the heart of this prophetic tradition that calls us to think about peace with justice not as labels but as ways of being, ways in which the world is infused with beauty and wonder and horror and that we are somehow called to deal with it. These last words are a short portion of Seamus Haney's modern play, The Curate Troy, a version of Sophocles' Philoctetes. The story as a whole is painful, and I won't go through all of the details. But it feels devoid of hope until this scene near the end. Something changes. Everything changes. The chorus offers these words. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully write a wrong inflicted and endured.
the innocent in jails beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that there is a further shore reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Dear ones in our personal and collective journeys, may we seek, may we find the day when hope and history rhyme. May we strive to see and to ease the suffering of all sentient beings, even as we celebrate and sing with the mountains even as we dance with the trees in rapturous delight. Both are critical. Both are the prophetic leg legacy that we inherit, are called to, are comforted by and challenged by. May we seek that day. May it be today.